From Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. Look here, today I've set before you life and what's good versus death and what's wrong. If you obey the Lord your God's commandments that I'm commanding you right now by loving the Lord your God, by walking in God's ways, and by keeping God's commandments, regulations, and case laws, then you will live and thrive, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and so are misled, worshiping other gods and serving them, I'm telling you right now that you will definitely die. You will not prolong your life on the fertile land that you are crossing the Jordan River to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth as my witnesses against you right now. I have set life and death, blessing and curse before you. Now choose life so that you and your descendants will live by loving the Lord your God, by obeying God's voice, and by clinging to God. That's how you will survive and live long on the fertile land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as I said, I'm Reverend Jen Logston Kellogg. I am the Minister of Evangelism and Welcoming here at Boston Avenue, and I'm still pretty new around here. I haven't uh, been here a whole year yet. July 15th was my first day, so I'm still going to play the I'm new card as long as I can. Um, I don't know. I'm new. Let me check on that. It's something I say often. But I'm not new to being a Christian, and I have been reading and thinking about the Bible for most of my life, and this is one of those passages that I have had some trouble with, and here's why. I have noticed that there are plenty of people that do all the right things and do good, and yet bad things still happen to them. And I have noticed that there are plenty of people who do bad things, and they seem to get along just fine in life. And so we're going to look at this maybe with some new eyes. But first, I want to tell you just a little bit about my background. I've told you when I've preached previously about my call to ministry and how I ended up entering the ministry at almost 40. But before I was in the ministry, of course, I worked. Um, I liked to eat, and so I had to figure out how to make it in the world uh, with making a paycheck before I entered in the ministry, and so I tried some different things. I went to Oklahoma City University, graduated in 1994 with a degree in philosophy and religion. I don't know if you have tried to get a job with a bachelor's degree in philosophy and religion, but it's not easy to find something in the field with just a bachelor's degree. And so I ended up going back to retail, which is what I had grown up doing. My dad ran a shoe store the whole time I was growing up. And I became an assistant manager in a jewelry store. And I enjoyed, I loved customers, of course. I'm a people person, but I also, believe it or not, enjoyed the business side. And so I decided to go back to school and work on a degree in accounting. This is a secret that I have kept from you for six months now, but here it is. 
And I started working on a master's degree in accounting at OSU. I did not finish it, uh, but I did start working on a master's. And because I had majored in philosophy and religion, that meant that I needed to take some undergraduate business courses before I could begin the graduate work. So I did. And as I was uh, taking those business classes and also working at the same time, I began to really enjoy accounting and especially uh, tax accounting, believe it or not. Here we are at tax time. Don't ask me to do your taxes. I don't do that anymore. But um, I was offered a job with an internship with a company here in Tulsa that developed software for professional accountants. They, we did both uh, accounting preparation software and tax preparation software, and I started an internship with Tax and Accounting Software Corporation, which is no longer here, and learned, first of all, how to test software. That was back in the day when we were transitioning from a DOS-based uh, software to Windows-based software, and so I was able to be a tester and make sure that all the little buttons worked when you clicked them. Uh, on the Windows program and then pull out a calculator and make sure that the calculations worked correctly. And I loved it. Even with my philosophy and religion mind and my love for people, I really loved software development. I moved then from being a, an intern in the testing department to I was asked to actually write code for the tax software. And it was fascinating and I found out that it has a lot to do with philosophy. Do you know that it's really fun to do equations and to figure out if this happens and this happens, then this needs to happen? For some of us, that sounds like a lot of fun. For others, you're going, no, thank you. And there's something very comforting and reassuring about being able to predict the results and the outcomes based on the inputs. It's algebra. If this happens, and this happens, and if this is true, and if this is true, then here's the result. And we've been taught to approach Scripture that way. If this is true, if you are following the rules as they are written in the Bible, and if you are doing it with a right heart and being faithful, then good things will happen to you. And if you're not, then bad things will happen to you. We're here in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Pentateuch. It's the last of the five books of Moses. And in chapter 30, we have had several chapters worth of rules and regulations and case laws and, and uh, people trying not only listing out what those rules are, but giving very specific examples of how they might apply. And then we've had a couple of chapters worth of blessings and curses and very explicit descriptions of what those blessings will be if you do the right things and follow God's laws. And then extraordinarily explicit, and by the way, much more numerous descriptions of the curses that will come upon you if you fail to do the things. And we're not the only ones who read Scripture this way. This is a 
uh, one of my professors, the, one of the Old Testament professors that I had in seminary, described this Deuteronomistic law as you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. And we continue to see through the narrative of Scripture that this is how the people of faith often approach it. So in the story of Job, Job is living his life, doing all the things right. The devil decides that he wants God to test Job. Job's family is killed. His property is destroyed. And his friends show up and sit with him. And for the first seven days, they don't say anything, which is exactly what you should do when somebody loses everything. You show up and you sit with them in their grief. But then the friends opened their mouths. And they said, what did you do wrong? Something. You must have done something to deserve this. Where did you screw up? Let's help you figure it out. Very generous friends, aren't they? But we do it all the time. In the New Testament, in John chapter 9, the disciples are walking along and they see a man who has been born blind and with their theological lens that they've been trained to use, they turn to Jesus and they say, Teacher, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents that sinned? Obviously, somebody must have sinned in order for this to have happened to him. If you've lived longer than 10 years, surely you know someone, if not yourself, who has had terrible things happen that you know you did not do anything to deserve. Happens every day. I'm reading uh, on, because it is Black History Month, I am trying to do some reading on not only the Tulsa Race Massacre, but some other reading in general about things that African-American people have experienced. And I picked up a book in our library um, by Clifton Talbert, who describes when he was a child learning, or learned it when he was an adult, but had heard it when he was a child, that his family had owned property in Mississippi, a plantation, and that they had lost it. And he found out when he was an adult, he found the records that indicated that, yes, they had indeed owned this plantation. African-American family had owned a plantation, and it had been auctioned off for unpaid tax bills, which they had never been informed they owed. Systemic wholesale theft of property is a part of our past. It has happened to African-American families. It has happened to Native American families. Here we are in Oklahoma, where the people who originally lived here were dispossessed of their land. And then the five civilized tribes were shoved from their land to Oklahoma. They were not the original Native Americans who were in this part of the country. And then once they were here, their land was reduced. And then under the allotment system, it was allotted to individual families, which made it very easy for them to be swindled out of their land. The people who have been beneficiaries of this system include me. 
I have to wonder, when I look at my abstract for my property, I have some property that I inherited from my grandparents in Ada. When I look at the abstract for that property, was it? I know that my grandfather didn't cheat anybody to get it, but where did it come from originally? Whose land really was that? Who suffered the loss of land that I now own? Am I personally responsible for that? That's a tough question. I am responsible to look and to find out. Reading about the Tulsa Race Massacre, I found that I don't know how much Reverend David Wiggs has preached on this. He may have preached on it before I got here, so if I'm repeating something he's already said, forgive me. But we are here at Boston Avenue Church, which at the time of the Tulsa Race Massacre, which occurred in um, May and June, May 31st and June 1st of 1921, was an all-white congregation. Nothing was ever said from the pulpit of this church to condemn what happened to the African-American community in Tulsa at the time. And here we are 100 years later, and it, at the 75th anniversary, the Race Commission, the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, issued a report that said, at the very least, the churches in this community need to recognize and admit that they did not stand up to protect those who were being harmed. Now, the story about what happened and, and the initiation of the riots shows that there was a young man who was arrested. He was being held at the county, at the, at the courthouse. The people who went to uh, protect him, the African-American community that went to protect him, numbered no more than 200. At least 2,000 white people went into North Tulsa, into the Greenwood District. And with no support from the fire department or from the city or county officials, white people looted and burned the homes and businesses of the Greenwood District. Bad things happened to people who did nothing wrong, who did not deserve it. So looking at this scripture that we're looking at in Deuteronomy 30, it is at the end of the people of Israel's journey out of slavery in Egypt through their time in the desert, their wilderness wandering, and as they are standing on the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready to enter the promised land. And yet, what I found out when I was doing my reading about when the book of Deuteronomy was written, while the stories and some of the information that are contained here probably existed uh, long before this, Deuteronomy was not actually compiled until after the exilic period. So Moses 
leads the Israelites out of Egypt. They wander in the, promise, uh, wander in the desert. They get ready to enter the promised land. That is where we are in the story. But in history, when this was written, they had already entered the promised land, by the way, having been commanded, they understood it by God to kill and destroy all the people who were already living there. They had gone through the period in which they were ruled by judges, and then they had entered the monastic period, the united kingdom under David and Solomon, and then the divided kingdom of the northern of Israel and the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And then each of those kingdoms had been attacked and overcome, first by Assyria and then by Babylon, and the people had been taken into captivity and the temple destroyed. And that is when this book was compiled and written to explain to the people, maybe, what had happened. Why did this terrible thing happen to you? We must not have followed the rules as God laid them out. But also, as one of the commentators I read said, as a lament. There we were. We were on the threshold of eternal life, this brand new life, this life of abundance and fertility that God had promised us when we were looking into entering the promised land. There we were. We were right there. We had it. And we blew it. What did we do wrong? Does that ever happen to you when you find yourself in a situation where you don't know how to handle it or when you're thinking, what have I done to deserve this? Your first thing you do is to try to figure out, what did I do wrong? Am I not good enough? In your outline, I have written some of the things that I thought of when I'm questioning myself. When I see that, that something is happening and I have lost all control and I feel like I haven't deserved this bad thing to happen, my first question is, am I not good enough? Am I not holy enough? Am I not doing enough? Am I not obedient enough? Am I not smart enough? Am I not caring enough? Am I not humble enough? Am I not woke enough? And so the people, looking at how things have gone so terribly wrong, maybe looking at themselves and saying, obviously, you do good things, you get good things, you do bad things, you get bad things. That's pretty clear. The inputs determine the outputs. So if bad things are happening, it must be on us. Which, of course, by extension, if something bad is happening to somebody else, well, it must be on them. And that is one way to look at this scripture. But I don't think it's the only way to look at this scripture. I think that the answer is also contained here in these verses. So it says, look here, I have put before you what's life and what's good versus death and what's wrong. What is life-giving and what is nourishing and what provides abundant life? That's the thing you should choose and that's the thing you should do. And the thing that is death-giving, if it's death-giving to someone else even, is the thing that you should reject. It says, 
If you obey the Lord your God's commandments that I'm commanding you right now by doing these things, loving the Lord your God, by walking in God's ways, and by keeping the commandments, then the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. And then in verse 19 and 20, it says again, choose life. If you choose life, you do it by loving the Lord your God. It's the only one that's mentioned twice. Love the Lord your God. By obeying God's voice and by clinging to God. I think we United Methodists have taken these verses right here and turned them into our three general rules. I think that right here is contained what we are told to do as United Methodists. To do no harm, to do all the good you can, and to stay in love with God. And part of doing no harm, and part of doing all the good we can, is to say, here in this situation, in this time, in this place, when we are at the threshold of change in our church, in our, in our local church, in our city, and in our denomination, and in our nation. How do we right now today not get wrapped up in shame and guilt and self-blame about what has happened in the past? How do we choose what is life-giving and will provide abundant life going forward as we stand on the threshold? And yes, we use Scripture and we look and see what are the commandments that God gave us And by the way, I think that Scripture, I've heard this description, Scripture is both fully human and fully divine, just as Jesus is. Scripture is presented to us through the lens of human beings, has been transmitted to us by human beings who are fallible. And so we are given the responsibility to interpret that Scripture through the lenses of tradition, reason, and experience. And we are to walk with God, And to follow God by seeing what was the example of Jesus in interpreting scriptures and how we translate that into action in a certain place in a certain time. That we continue to listen for God's voice to guide us in what is the life-giving thing to do in this moment in time. And that third thing, attending upon the ordinances of God. Our third general rule, which Reuben Job translated a little more um, effectively, I think. Stay in love with God. Stay in love with God. Cling to God. And so when we begin asking these questions of ourselves, are we good enough? Are we doing enough? Are we faithful enough? Are we spiritual enough? Maybe that's not the right question to be asking. Maybe the right question to be asking is, am I alive? Am I alive enough? Am I living instead of dying? Am I choosing life and that which is life-giving, instead of that which is death-dealing. My favorite description of the church is that we, as the body of Christ, 
are inspired by the breath of the Holy Spirit. And so if we are breathing by the breath of the Holy Spirit, then we are alive. We are acting as the body of Christ in Tulsa in 2020. But if we're not breathing by the breath of the Holy Spirit, then we are a group of people gathered together, but we're not functioning as the body of Christ. Are we alive? 